Well, let us continue and conclude our series called Let Us Pray. And this message is entitled, This is a House of Prayer. Several weeks ago, we began to intentionally move the congregation and the church to be intentional about prayer. We feel that prayer is one of the most neglected aspects of the Christian life here in America. It's one of the greatest blessings, it's one of the greatest privileges, and yet we believe it's one of the most neglected aspects of our personal lives and of our community life. So we began to look at every aspect of our church to see how we could be more intentional about prayer. Now, how many of you are starting to realize that if you don't become intentional about things in your life, they just don't get done, right? I'm, I really want to clean out the closets at home. Well, put it on the calendar. I don't want to because then I've committed to it. To get something done, to move you from point A to point B, you have to become intentional about it. You can't just hope that it changes. You just can't hope that it'll go away. You have to make some changes. You have to sometimes correct course. So we started with the leaders of every ministry in the church. And we said, we're going to be more intentional about prayer. And the elders started praying once a month, collectively. Then we moved into a Sunday night prayer meeting. We then did the 33 days of prayer, which everybody really seemed to enjoy. And in the next couple of weeks, if not the next week, we're going to be doing the 33 days of Thanksgiving, all the way up to the day of Thanksgiving, where in our prayer lives, we're going to be thankful for different things. And we have indicated what those things are, and you can be thankful for them. Because being thankful is part of our prayer life. With Thanksgiving, Paul writes, let us be thankful for those things that we have. So the question then became, after all we implemented, how are we doing? We feel like we've got some great momentum. We feel like the church is praying. We're hearing of more families that are praying together in the church. We hear more people who are obviously coming out to the Sunday night prayer meeting. We've had nice crowds for that. So we're very, very happy with the way God responded. Now, how do we wrap up this series That was a question I wrestled with all week because there's many different things that we could discuss. Again, when we talk about prayer in the Bible, we're talking about a vast subject. And we could look at it from many, many, many different perspectives. And I sought the Lord and I asked, Lord, what would you have Calvary Chapel Cardinal look at? What do you want us to recognize? And I believe that as we close this series together, I must bring your attention to one of the most extraordinary moments in the life of Jesus. It's extraordinary because he acts in a manner that you might find completely foreign to that of the character of Jesus Christ. He gets mad. He gets angry at what he sees and makes it well known to all who are there. It's recorded in all four Gospels. Some believe this actually happened twice, because John gives us a little different rendering of the event. Some believe that it happened twice in the life of Jesus. 
But in both occasions, or in the same occasion, we find Christ acting in a way unbeknownst to His character. The only time in Scripture that the word violent could possibly be used in synonymous with Christ, in conjunction with Christ. And we find that occasion in Mark's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 15, if you turn there with me. And let's read our text together. Mark 11, verse 15, and this is the manner in which we will close our series on prayer. Then they, and that is speaking of the disciples and Jesus, came to Jerusalem. And he, that is Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching And when evening came, they went out of the city. That is Jesus and his disciples. What is going on? As you read the other accounts throughout the Gospels, Matthew's in Matthew 21, verse 12, Luke in 19, verse 45, or John chapter 2, verse 13, you get this picture of Christ entering into the temple And he sees something that he just cannot tolerate. It just will not be. And he throws over money, the temple uh, money changers' tables and those selling ox and lambs and those selling pigeons as we read all four accounts together. One tells us that he possibly drove out all of these people with a whip. He did, but we don't know if that was the first occasion or all the same occasion. Something got to him. Not only in his reaction, but in his rebuke, we discover what the issue was. They were desecrating the temple. No longer did it appear to be sacred to them. And it becomes more troubling to discover where they were actually doing this within the temple. The temple wasn't just one building. It was one building surrounded by a series of courts. And in those different courts, different people would assemble at different times to worship God. They had one for the Jewish men. They had one for the Jewish women. And they had one for the Gentiles. A court that God hoped would be filled with those from other nations who would look upon the Jewish people and see and desire their relationship with God and want that for themselves. It is in this court that they made it an oriental bazaar. And not only did it become a marketplace filled with those kiosks that you see in your local malls, 
People buying and selling and trading. Merchandising the things of God. Not only was that an abomination to Jesus, but it was the fact that the practice was so corrupt, the prices were so high, that the exchange rates were so heavy that it became unaffordable and people were profiting on these things. Now I'm giving you the condensed version. But for Jesus, this would not stand. For he said, for my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer. From the very beginning, God desired to interact with his creation. From Adam to Noah to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to Joshua, all the way up and through, God desired to be amongst his people. And when it came to their settling into their land and David realizing as king he could not build the temple of God, it would be an honor that his son would have Solomon. When Solomon finally built that beautiful structure known as Solomon's temple, there was a dedication, a prayer of dedication of the temple that was made. And in that dedication we hear the heart and his desires for how the temple should be approached. If you take your Bibles and turn there with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 8. After the Ark of the Covenant had been brought in, after Solomon blesses the Lord, we begin in verse 22. And I'd like you to read these words with me, because we get a real heart's desire for what this temple was meant to be a place for God to dwell amongst his people. In verse 22 of chapter 8 of 1 Kings, Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand and have fulfilled it to this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised to him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. Verse 27. Listen to these words. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven And the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that is the temple that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer of your servant, praise before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen 
to the prayer that your servants offer towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear. And when you hear, I should say, forgive. Listen to the heart of Solomon. Let this be the place where people can interact with you through prayer. From the very beginning. This was God's desire. This was Solomon's desire. Now we come fast forward to the time that Jesus comes into the temple and there in the court of the Gentiles, not filled with Gentiles praying and lifting their hands up to God, but filled with money changers, merchants, filled with individuals taking advantage of the people who are coming there to worship God in the court of the Gentiles. We must understand that. In verse 15 we read, And they, that is the disciples, came to Jerusalem, and they entered into the temple and began to drive out. I should say he entered into the temple and began to drive out, that is forcefully drive out, those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Again, the only act that could even be considered violent in all of the recorded history of Christ, other than his crucifixion, the violence towards him, or the whipping of the 39 lashes upon him. This is the only time he acts out in such a way. As one notices, he says, this is the only act of violence recorded of the Lord, and it is understandable as a public demonstration of zeal for God's honor. Let me explain to you what was going on at the time to help you realize how appalling this actually was. Historians tell us that it wasn't uncommon for merchants or these marketeers to be in an area called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives were just outside the temple proper. And these merchants allowed for the purchasing of animals that could be sacrificed unto God. During certain times of the year, people pilgrimed from all over Israel to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices unto God. There would be the occasion that on their pilgrimage, either the animal that they had prepared without spot nor blemish got sick, died, got injured, but they couldn't go back to do it all over again because it was too far and they couldn't find another animal suited. So the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin at this time, opened up these merchants at the uh, entrance of the temple proper, there in the Mount of Olives, where one could purchase an animal that has already been approved. So, last resort, you get there and you need to purchase an animal. Not necessarily a bad thing at that point, but a point of convenience. However, though, you couldn't purchase it with the Roman currency because the Roman currency had the image of Caesar on it. So they had to change it for Tyrian shekels. That was the the currency that they used at that time. And then there was a charge for that money-changing transaction. 
Then on top of that, there was a tax, a yearly tax that all male Jewish people had to pay called the temple tax. And the Sanhedrin ran all of this in the Mount of Olives. And there were modest but not exorbitant exchange rates at that time. History tells us it wasn't until uh, A.D. uh, 29 that Caiaphas, the high priest, got the idea that, wait a minute, this this is a gold mine. Instead of bringing it outside there at the Mount of Olives, let's bring it inside the temple. And we'll do it inside the courtyard of the Gentiles, because there's none there anyway. Think, Think about this now for a minute. What is meant to be a point of witnessing and and taking God into the known world. There's nobody there anyway, so let's just use it to make some money. And then it became even more corrupt as they raised the rates for exchange, meaning you brought your money in and you you would pay one shekel and get half a shekel back. I mean, the exchange rates were astronomical. The tax rates went up that you had to pay with the new currency that you just paid for to get and obtain. But the most wicked aspect of it was they began historically to teach the priests to reject almost every animal brought and say, I'm sorry, there's a blemish, there's a spot. Remember, your animal has to be perfect. And they took the animal from the people and said, no, now you've got to go buy one from us that has already been pre-approved and then come back and offer it onto us. It was a gold mine for Caiaphas. Now the ironic thing was is that the priest would take the animal that they deemed unworthy and at night they would put it in the pen to be sold the next day as worthy. That's how corrupt it got. And Caiaphas was leading all of this. The secular thinking saw this moneymaker and said, let's bring it into the temple. So they bring it into the court of the Gentiles. And they make this thing an oriental bazaar. I love that term for it. If you can imagine, if you've ever been to the Middle East, you go in there and everybody's bartering and everybody's bidding on different things. And, you know, you're, you're even haggling over the price of a falafel. You know, you're just going at it. And this is where people were supposed to come and worship God. Now, also keep in mind that this all took place in the weeks just prior to Passover. An event that recorded the redemption of man through the spilling of the Lamb's blood. And here comes Jesus, who one week later will most likely at this time be on the cross. And he sees this holotry going on. The merchandising of the things of God. That these people are being taken advantage of one right after another and to be done in the courtyard of the Gentiles where they were meant to be a witness unto all the world. And from the moment he started overturning those tables, from the moment he started driving those people out, Jesus was not interested at this point in reformation. I agree with those who are saying he's entering in judgment. This temple that you were so prideful about that you worship in and of itself, you have made a den of thieves. And we'll talk about what he meant by that in just a moment. But listen to what one wrote. He said, 
the installation of stalls for the sale of animals and all the other requirements for the sacrifice, such as wine and oil and salt, had the effect of transforming the court of the Gentiles into a simple oriental bazaar and a cattle mart at best. Jesus was appalled at this disregard for the sanctity of this area, for the consecrated use of the Gentiles who had not yet become full Jews, those proselytes that were on their way to Judaism. This was the moment that they were going to discover God. But the temple to them had become nothing more than corruption. Historians tell us that people knew that it had grown so corrupt. It wasn't a hidden fact. They knew that their worship of God was being taken advantage of. And Jesus clears out the money changers. As one wrote, he said the priests received their share of the prophets, after all. These services were a convenience to the Jews who traveled from, to, to Jerusalem to worship God from other areas of the land. Suppose a foreign Jew carried his own sacrifice with him, then discovered that it was rejected because of some blemish. The money rates were always changing, so that men who exchanged foreign currencies were doing the visitor a favor, even though the merchants were making a generous profit off of these people. It was easy for them to rationalize the whole enterprise. They justified it in their own hearts. In Mark's gospel, there's a word added to show the depth of depravity and the depth of corruption. It's an interesting word. It's the word pigeons. The pigeons were available there for the poor people who couldn't afford an ox or a lamb. In fact, Joseph and Mary themselves offered pigeons. Women would offer pigeons. They were there to allow even poor people to come in and to worship God and to have these things brought as a sacrifice on their behalf. But even they were taken advantage of. There are three people that you do not take advantage of according to God. The widows, the orphans, and the poor. Be careful at that moment. You're treading on dangerous ground. On top of that, there was the tax. And the taxes were going up every year for the people of God. Each man had to pay of this tax. And yet all of this was happening just moments before Passover, where God would commemorate for all of His people the redemption of His people through the Passover lamb. In verse 16, there's an interesting verse that Jesus said, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. If you look at a map, you'll understand what he's saying here. It became a shortcut through the Mount of Olives, through the court of the Gentiles to where they needed to go. It was a shortcut. It was just a means to an end. And people would just tramp through there anytime they wanted. There was no regard for anything there. And Jesus stopped it all and said, forget it. This isn't just a pathway for you to get where you want to go. This isn't just some shortcut for you to take. And he would not let them carry their things through there. They wanted an end around. They wanted to get ahead of everyone else by taking this shortcut. And he said no to them all. 
Listen to Jesus' rebuke in verse 16, 17, I should say. And he was teaching them and saying to them, there's the idea that he was imploring them, he was enlightening them, but he was also correcting them and rebuking them. Is it not written? And then he goes on to quote two portions of two different passages, one from Isaiah and one from Jeremiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what it's meant to be. The perspective of the world upon this place is meant to be that of one that this is a house of prayer. I ask you folks this morning, what is the perspective of the world upon the church here in America today? Have you ever asked anyone what they thought of the church in America today? Do you know how many times I've been told that the church is all about money? It's all about being hypocritical. It's all about self-righteousness. People don't even see the church as being the contact place for God. They don't see us, who are now the temple of God, collective together, as that point where God interacts with mankind. Everything else stands in the way. They can't get past these things. And when you hear about the number of ministries that have been so financially corrupt over the years, it's sickening, isn't it? It's sickening to discover these individuals claiming to their congregations that they need a jet plane to get from point A to point B. That we absolutely need this rock wall to get closer to God for the kids. We need a triple-decker basketball court in our church to make sure that we are ministering to all the needs of the people. Really? What about the short people who don't play basketball? These are actual requests the churches have made in America. The millions of dollars that are being filtered through some of these churches. The solicitation of the people. I see it as the pyramids of Egypt being built again once again on the backs of the slaves. I remember not so long ago a pastor who got up in front of everyone and stated very carefully that they needed a new building as a church. And there was this building that was available and he encouraged people to take out second mortgages on their homes. He encouraged people to even use their credit cards if necessary. And people did it because they wanted to be obedient to God. They wanted, they wanted God's blessing in their lives. They wanted to do what God had asked them to do. I think giving is part of our worship as Christians. But when you're solicited in that regard, it's sickening to the people of God. And they got their money. And they got their building on the backs of people who are now carrying two mortgages or heavy credit card debt. I asked the question, what's the difference of those who bought indulgences at the time of Martin Luther to build the chapel there in Rome? And then the pastor got up after they got into their building and he 
stood before the congregation and he said, look at what the Lord has done. Baloney. Look at what you have done. And after a while, the building became unaffordable to the congregation. It was sick. Look at the number of pastors that were exposed in the Ashley Madison issue when it was hacked and the number of pastors who had solicited to find affairs to have on their wives. It's sickening. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And it continues on and on and on. What Jesus said about prayer, he says, to speak or to make a request known of God, to pray, to speak to God, to ask God, and to simply pray to God. As one wrote, he says, the Jews looked on the temple primarily as a place of sacrifice, but Jesus saw it as a place of prayer. True prayer in and of itself is sacrifice unto God. As the psalmist wrote in Psalm 141, 1 and 2, he says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It is this spiritual view that Jesus was promoting while the leaders promoted a traditional view that was cluttered by rules and regulations. As one commented, he said, the court of the Gentiles should have been a place for praying, but instead a place of praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, and paying. G.B. Campbell Morgan said that the point of it being called a den of thieves meant it was a place where thieves could run and hide. They were doing this all under the cloak that it is for God. And they were hiding and they were using this as a disguise to cover up their sin and hypocrisy. And Jesus is exposing it all. The question that I have for us is, how do outsiders consider our community? Do they see Calvary Chapel as a place of prayer where people can go and meet God through the teaching of the Word, through the worship of God, through the prayers of His people? Or do they see us in some other way that we have created a drape or a tapestry that would not allow them to see God when He should be made manifest to all through us? That is the question that I wrestle with. For us, and that's why we are ending on this text in our time of prayer. If you go back to the verses in which he quote from Isaiah 56, 6 or 8, listen to these words. And the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring into my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all Gentiles. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Here's what he's saying. We are meant to be attractive. We are meant to display God so people would desire God. 
And if people were entering into the temple and the first thing that they saw was this bazaar where money changing was going, where things were being sold, where merchandise were making great profits, where corruption reigned, what kind of witness is that? It violated the highest principle that Jesus says, this shall be a house of prayer. But it became more like a swap meet and he drove out the money changers. In Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11, the Jewish people used to look at the prayer, uh, at the temple, I should say, as a sacred object. And they could sin any way they wanted to during the week, but then they would run to the temple. They felt that they were privileged because they had the temple. And they felt they were okay because the temple was there. But God said, in Jeremiah 7, 8 through 11, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. You steal, you murder, you commit adultery, you swear falsely, making offers to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, speaking of the temple, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it and declares the Lord. One wrote this. This notice indicates that Jesus expelled the merchants from the court of the Gentiles in order to safeguard rights and privileges sanctified by God. The use of the forecourt as an open market effectually prevented the one area of the temple which was available to the Gentiles for being a place of prayer. Think about that for a moment. Think about that for a moment. The disdain that many in the world have for the church unfortunately has been caused by us. making merchandise of the people, making the people just a means to an end for their own particular purposes and agenda. Let it not be so. We want nothing here at this church to distract you from coming and hearing the Word of God, participating in the worship of God, and entering in the presence of God through prayer. That's what we desire this church church to be we can't correct every other church that is out there but we can be responsible for the church here that we are part of can we not but notice there is repercussions verse 18 and we'll close with this and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were asked or were seeking a way to destroy him For they feared him, because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, that is Jesus and the disciples, went out of the city. There is coming a time where the persecution that we face as believers is going to be rendered at the hands of those who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. I cannot tell you over the years how many I have spoken with as pastors, elders of other churches who are astonished at how lax we seem to be about 
giving here at this church. In their opinion, we should be much more quote-unquote aggressive about giving. Frankly, we have never looked to any of you to be the sole providers of the need for this church. I hope that doesn't insult you. Because we believe it's God who provides. And where He leads us, and where He guides us, He will provide for us. That goes without saying. We trust Him in that. We never wanted to make merchandise of the people of this church. We never wanted to look at you as a means to an end. We wanted individuals to see God working here. We wanted them to see what He could do. And over 20 years, we have cultivated that. Not that we are saying that we don't believe it is your responsibility to be giving. We do. We think that's part of the Christian life, to give to your home church. But I'm not going to badger you for it. I'm not going to send collection notices out to you. That's between you and God. Because it's God who ultimately provides for this church. I will tell you that in 2012, after we moved in, we used a lot of our savings to renovate this facility. And money was tight. But because we had cultivated an issue of a tactic of prayer, we just went to prayer and asked God to provide. And as we were seeking Him, and as we were asking Him, we were fluctuating in attendance, we were fluctuating in giving, and we're like, oh boy, Lord, what are you going to do? Until all of a sudden, the Saturday before the needs were needed to be met, that following Sunday, that Saturday, my wife called me from her place of employment and said, listen, one of my clients has just dropped by because the Lord laid us on his heart and he gave me an envelope to open with your name on it. I said, well, open it. So she opened it and inside was a card and he said, I was praying and the Lord wanted me to give this to you. And it was a check for $5,000. I can tell you countless number of occurrences like that where God provides for what he guides us to obtain. So think about Jesus here seeing these people detracted by these money changers. Profiting off the poor. My house shall be a house of prayer, he says. That's the way we want to wrap up this time together. Listen to these words. For Israel, God's dwelling place was first the tabernacle, then the temple. In the New Testament, the local assembly is presented in the same character, the temple of God, the house of God. But what of our attitude and conduct in relationship to it? Is our attendance governed simply by the thoughts of what we can get for ourselves? Company, friendship, etc.? Is it no more than a practical convenience void of spiritual exercise? Or do we appreciate the sacred character and responsibilities of the assembly that gathers together? That's what we want here. We want to be a place where people can come and interact with God. But God doesn't need a building, does he? 
God doesn't need one particular place. He's everywhere. And God resides in you. You as the temple of God now, the temple of the Holy Spirit, when you interact with people, it is giving them an opportunity to interact with God who dwells within you. Do you realize that? So not only should our character be above reproach in all things, that we may not distract from people seeing Christ within us, But let us understand that as a follower in Jesus Christ, he would ask me to be a man or a woman of prayer, to allow that to shine through. Those are the questions that we pose to you this morning as we conclude our time in a series that we've called Let Us Pray. And I want each and every one to know in this congregation that we consider this a house of prayer.